This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thanks so much for joining us again. The Great Falls Tribune in Montana recently reported that a number of worried residents stepped up at a Great Falls City Commission meeting, airing their concerns about plans for a big sky country national heritage area. Now, this is a plan to federally recognize all of Cascade County and part of another county as a heritage site for the history associated with the region relating to Lewis and Clark, First Peoples, and the New West, among other themes. And this would be the first national heritage area in Montana, but these residents expressed some serious misgivings about it, rightly raising the fact that there's a potential here for government infringement upon their private property rights. And they're right. In fact, my next guest says national heritage areas just like this amount to one of the most despicable stealth land grabs in the nation. So we're going to find out more about it now from Tom DeWeese, president of the American Policy Center, who has been standing against these plans and has written several articles on the issue over at AmericanPolicy.com. And it's so good to welcome you back, Tom. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Janet. Good to be with you. Good to have you here. Give us the lowdown on national heritage areas and this entire issue, because I think for many listeners, they're not aware of what's going on at all. No, they're not. And, you know, uh, in the... Across the country, conservatives particularly have not been in favor of you know, a lot of the big environmental programs coming in that are land grabs that are taking people's property and so forth and wouldn't support that. And what I find about national heritage areas is this is a stealth land grab and it's used to kind of dupe conservatives into supporting these programs uh, because it's sold as protecting our heritage our, and, and, and our, our history. And people think, oh, well, okay, that's a good thing to do. But here's how it actually operates. The, uh, the money all goes through the National Park Service. And they line out, they put together a whole borderline around uh, what they want to be, these things. And sometimes these are 10, 15, 20 counties at a time it can be. Uh, and uh, so they put this barrier all around it. And they have these non-governmental organizations, environmental groups and, and various other private uh, organizations with their own agendas, and they are taking this money. And they are using that money to go into city hall, uh, to counties and so forth, and push their own private agendas. And uh, for the most part, the heritage area isn't even mentioned in this. They are putting their environmental agendas, their land grabs and so forth together, and the heritage area doesn't get blamed for it. Yet the money is coming from the heritage area. And, And even worse... Uh, I noted in one of my articles, in 1928, uh, the then Interior Secretary, uh, Herbert Work, said that National Park Service policy is to eliminate all private holdings in our national parks. Well, if you've put a boundary around the entire county or the whole area, uh, and the money's coming from the National Park Service, what does that tell you? And uh, so 
these are some of the things that are happening with this, which they don't mention uh, when they put you know these heritage areas together. They t- they talk about well, we're just preserving the wonderful heritage that took place there. But the fact of the matter is that the uh, the, the real historic things, maybe it's a presidential birthplace, the battlefield, something like that, are pri- probably already preserved. So what is it they're preserving otherwise there that takes in entire cities, entire neighborhoods, all the businesses there, everything involved inside the boundary of that heritage area? Well, this is a very complex thing, as you've just described. When you have money going through the National Park Service and then getting into the hands of NGOs, a lot of people are wondering, well, number one, why is money going to the NGOs to be able to establish and accomplish their own land grabs? And secondly, how do they accomplish land grabs? Like what happens when a national heritage area is established in a particular case uh, that you get to the point where private property rights really are under threat because of this? Yeah, well, again, the and this is this is something that I, I'm really dealing with uh, with a lot of people who are are upset about these things, and they keep saying, "Give me an example. Give me an example of a heritage area doing something like this." And what I'm trying to explain is that in most cases, it, the heritage area won't be blamed for it uh, because. It's not mentioned, but the money from the Park Service is going into the pockets of these very active uh, organizations that have their agendas to lock away land for other reasons. Mm. And yet, I mean, that's what's paying for it is is the heritage area. But in in some other cases, you have, uh, for example, uh, in along the the Mississippi River. They, uh, they have the Mississippi Delta National Heritage Area and the Mississippi Gulf Coast National Heritage Area. And uh, this is a region, you know, very uh, rich in, in history. Yeah. But, uh, you know, one of the things you had uh, for, for history along the Mississippi River uh, is people living on riverboats. Sure, there. yeah. And that's right out of Mark Twain, you know. Right, right. Uh, and uh, back in the 1990s, there was a move to get the, uh, when they have put these heritage areas together there, the move to get the houseboats off the river. They, again, they said it, inv- it damaged the environment of the Mississippi River. And one of the things that this caused was insurance companies, to, they declared a floodplain there, and you couldn't build along the river, of, uh, along the, the banks of the river. These were uh, uh, agendas from radical environmental groups to put the Mississippi River into a museum, not allowed to do anything on it, uh, and the heritage area wasn't blamed for that, but the money for them to lobby this and move forward with it, that's where it came from. Oh, goodness. Why are these NGOs given this kind of power? It would seem to me if this is some kind of a governmental effort that the government itself should be handling more of this and not kind of outsourcing it to some of these NGOs. I know it's kind of, again, kind of complicated, but why are they doing it this way? Because then they can kind of handpick which NGOs get to do the deal. And I would imagine the government isn't so inclined to hand over any sort of control to a conservative organization necessarily. Well, they, they literally put together a, uh, 
uh, a pact with a lot of these organizations. You have inside the, the Park Service, Park Service has been a very bad neighbor to a whole lot of people who live next door to, to a lot of parks or uh, national parks and so forth. They, uh, they, they trample on property rights all the time. <laughs> and so you've got people inside the Park Service that are uh, in, in cahoots a lot with these NGO organizations. And they'll sit down around the table and they'll take the, together with Park Service people and, and these NGOs make out the map of where this is going to be, what the boundaries are going to be. And uh, then, they, then they put it together. They, they're in a partnership to it. And they know they're going to get the money and, uh, and it's going to give them political power. Right. So there are 55 of these, as I understand it right now, with push, you know, these pushes going on for more, like I just mentioned at the outset about Montana. It's a good thing, though, that these homeowners are kind of in on it. At least they're a little bit awake to the possibility that their private property rights could really be threatened by this national heritage area. Yeah, and this, this is a very good point to, to bring up, is that they, they are absolutely uh, right and concerned about their property rights. One of the things that they will tell you that they have language in the National Heritage Area bill, these, these bills come from Congress, and that they have language in there that uh, is the protection of property rights. This, this language was written by Congressman Frank Wolf from Virginia, who was a major pusher of these things. And that language normally says, that this is the language they've put in a lot of them, nothing in this subtitle abridges the right of any property owner, including the right to refrain from participating in a plan, project, program, or actively conducted, uh, or activity uh, conducted within the National Heritage Area. And they point to that and they say, you see, your property rights are protected. If you don't want to participate in this, you can opt out. That language is absolutely worthless. I'll tell you what, Tom, pause it right there. We're going to take a very short break. We'll be back with Tom DeWeese talking about this problem of national heritage areas. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Back in a moment. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people and, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger, or especially hunger, is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa. On average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. We went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. Uh, the church had about um, about 100 people and the, the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible. And that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can, you know, where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible League is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 
of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. You can be the answer to a Bibleless believer praying for God's Word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and your gift right now of any size will help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Call 800 Yes Word, 800 Y E S W O R D, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, these days when we are cognizant of the erosion of our liberties here in the United States, one that we must keep an eye on is the issue of private property rights. And Tom DeWeese, my guest, president of the American Policy Center, is one of those great voices and great activists keeping track on what's going on across the country that would undermine or threaten people's private property rights, one of which is the subject of the national heritage areas that we're discussing. Tom, you had mentioned that when these national heritage areas are set up, they will often point to this language that's laid out that, oh, you, you know, your private property rights are not under threat. Why is that not the case? Why can we not rest on that language that, that will assure residents uh, everything's okay? If you, you're part of a national heritage area, don't worry about your property. Yeah, they're telling them that they can opt out if they don't want to participate in this. What a national heritage area does, first of all, this is a federal bill. It becomes a federal uh, program, and it has federal money, and it has a federal boundary that is put together. Name any time, anywhere in this country that anybody can opt out on just because they want to on a federal law right. and a federal boundary. You can't do it. And uh, it, it's interesting because I, uh, back a couple of years ago, uh, the, uh, down in, uh, around the Caddo Lake in Louisiana, they were trying to put together a national heritage area there. I spoke in a very rural area. I spoke to 400 people down there. And, I, and, and during my presentation, I brought this issue up, and I said, show of hands, how many of you would like to opt out of this? Every hand in the room went up. Hmm. Uh, that, but see, it doesn't work that way, and uh, because it's a federal boundary, it, it doesn't. And and the other part of this, as I mentioned earlier, you have uh, certain things everywhere over all over this country. You have historic things that have taken place, uh, but these uh, heritage areas put these boundaries around entire cities, entire communities, entire counties, uh, of course, your property and everything else. And uh, so, you know, it's not honoring anything. It is all, it's, it's a setup for more control, more federal control of the land, because the things that are really historic have already been preserved. Yes. Right. So, so in other words, I think you have mentioned here that one of the reasons that they state you need to have a national heritage area here is, for example, to boost tourism. You said this doesn't even happen. Yeah, I, I can't find a single example anywhere that says that uh, the tourism has been improved because of this. Wow. And uh, it, it's interesting, The uh, back uh, a few years back, they were implementing in Virginia, and it actually went from uh, Thomas Jefferson's home uh, up to Gettysburg Battlefield. That's the entire heritage area there to over several states and uh, several counties. 
and uh, uh, they uh, putting this heritage area in there. And I talked to one of the congressmen uh, who uh, from Maryland who was one of the co-sponsors of this. And I said, Congressman, why are you a, a co-sponsor of this? And he said, well, I think it's, it's to help honor what's happened there and, and to help tourism uh, and help the communities prosper from that. And I said, Congressman, you could put a plaque up. You could, you could pass a resolution through Congress honoring what happened there and give the communities a plaque that they could put up, and the city and Chamber of Commerce could, could then begin to build tourism on that. And he said, you're right. <laughs> and he put in a bill to do exactly that, and it was immediately killed because uh-huh. it's not about that. It is about you know, federal control of the land and the money going into the pockets of these organizations. I cannot emphasize that enough. Right. And uh, but there's there's a perfect example of it. The congressman tried to do the right thing, and uh, they weren't having it. What is the end goal, though, of doing this sort of thing? Of of up to fifteen to twenty counties, you've said in some cases, being declared national heritage areas, and these people can be caught up in it, and they really don't have any opt out ability whatsoever. Why are they doing this? What what are they really trying to accomplish by doing this if, in fact, as you've mentioned, you could do this another way without affecting people the way you are? Why are they doing this land grab? I mean, where does this end? Yeah. Well, take a look at the, the new proposal that's up right now uh, through the Interior Department, what they call the 30 by 30, uh, to, to have 30 percent of all the land. Uh, under uh, federal control within the next 30 years. And this is farmland and, and you know, all of that. And it it is just a a drive to destroy private property rights across the country, national uh, state sovereignty, and uh, their ability to control the land, you know, each state in their own, uh, uh, you know, area and their own boundaries. And uh, it, it is about control. And we, that, you know, it, I can't emphasize it enough. We have these people who want to destroy the, 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 the real pillars of freedom, free enterprise, private property, personal choice. And private property is one of the main goals to get rid of in, in these programs. That sounds radical. That sounds crazy. I'm not making it up. I'm just quoting them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think as the years go by, fewer and fewer people will think that sounds outrageous given what we've seen in the last few years alone, our attacks on our uh, attacks on our freedoms. It's really shocking. But when you're talking about this Department of the Interior plan, 30 by 30, what is their stated reason why they need 30% of the land? What, why? What, it's not like the, you know, the Biden administration wants to find more oil and gas to, to take out of the land. I mean, what is the stated reason? Well, again, it goes back to this radical environmental position that uh, uh, human beings are destroying the land. They, you know, we, we now have this whole line about how uh, American farmers, the American cattle industry, is destroying the land, destroying, destroying the environment. And we need to have these brilliant leaders at the top of the federal government to determine. People who have never been on the land in the first place. They've never come out of their high-rises in New York. But they're making these decisions on what we have to do to protect, uh, you know, the environment. And uh, that's, that has been the excuse, that has been the scare tactic. Anytime you hear the word sustainable, run. Yeah. Because it has nothing to do with protecting the environment. It is all about control. 
and that's the, that's the catchword. Well, and you've said the greatest threat from the heritage area is it creates a pipeline of federal money and also power for these groups to promote agendas that they have over our local communities and their development. So again, what we're seeing is this attack on localism. Your local school board or your local city council or what have you uh, taking more and more power, it would seem, away from your local elected officials in order to implement a broader agenda. What do you do about it, Tom? How in the world can citizens fight back against this if you can't even get a congressman to get a bill uh, further than uh, putting it together on paper and then it's killed? I mean, what do you do about it? Well, first of all, let me tell you, we have stopped three of these so far. Great. And uh, I mentioned the Caddo Lake uh, in Louisiana. That was the most recent one. Uh, we had the Crooked Road in uh, Virginia, the Crooked Road Heritage Area, and we stopped that, and, uh, and one in Colorado. In each case, it was local opposition in, in this. In the Caddo Lake situation, uh, we had a couple of congressmen that had sponsored that bill, and as I said, I spoke to 400 people uh, the night I was down there, and the opposition stood up so strongly, it scared the congressmen. They weren't used to that. They thought, oh, this will just be a, a piece of cake. We'll just, you know, we're just going to, you know, just honoring our history. And they were shocked by that kind of, of opposition, and they pulled the bill. In Virginia, with the Crooked Road thing, the congressman who introduced that bill uh, I immediately spoke out against it, and he called me to talk about it. And I told him everything we're telling you today about this. And what he did then was he went out to the uh, the public and said, oh, I've talked to Tom DeWeese. He's helping me. He's working with me on this. We'll make it a really good bill. I put out an action alert and called him an absolute liar because I did not say that under any circumstances. And what began to happen then was county uh, commission by county commission began to stand up and say, no, we aren't going to approve that. We don't want this to be in our community. And uh, and we killed it. That is excellent. Have you been involved to any extent with this effort in Montana that I mentioned before, this big sky country heritage area? I haven't been personally involved in that. There's also a couple other ones, people, I think one in Florida as well. Uh, it's, uh, what I'm seeing from the phone calls I'm getting from people is that they've got new federal money, and so they're pushing these things again. It was kind of quiet for a while. All of a sudden, there's more of these popping up. That's the reason that I put out my most recent uh, three-part uh, article on this, to give these people some ammunition so that they had the the information to fight back. Well, that's excellent. And again, AmericanPolicy.org is the website. People can get in contact with you there and read all about it. When it comes to people who are affected, who are part of a national heritage area, Tom, how much actual control do they have over their own private property? To, to what extent is it actually compromised? Well, it just depends on what kind of uh, regulations they put in place. But uh, they, you know, they, they, a lot of these regulations have to do with development, have to do with uh, maybe the kind of building materials you can use, and, uh, you know, uh, the, the open space and that sort of thing, right. uh, how, you, how that's used. And uh, these are the kinds of things that they begin to put in place. And, uh, you know, the, the other thing is industry. Uh, they, they would say, well, gee, you can't have that kind of industry here. Mm. That, would, uh, that would damage the, you know, if they use the heritage area, they would say that would damage the heritage area. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I, there, there was actually one, one line that was made having to do with something like this uh, with the, the uh, Bull Run Battlefield 
uh, first Manassas battlefield in Virginia, and one of the arguments was actually was you can't put a cell tower up there. Uh, General Lee didn't see that cell tower there. You know? <laughs> Actually, it wasn't General Lee because he wasn't in First Manassas. But you know, that's that's the that's the attitude. Oh, unbelievable! Yeah. Well, we got to keep an eye on it. You can read Tom Deweese's great stuff over at AmericanPolicy.org. Tom, thank you for what you're doing to inform all of us about these important issues. It was great having you here. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, you take care. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now here's your host, Janet Mefford. What would life be like as a Christian for you if you didn't have a Bible? It's kind of inconceivable, isn't it? But that's the situation in much of Africa, where in some places, nine out of 10 Christians don't have a copy of God's word. Now, we want to remedy that, which is why we here at Janet Meffer today are proud to be partnering with Bible League International in their Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa in the next few weeks. But in order to do that, we do need your help. Happily, it only costs $5. Here's the number to call if you'd like to be a part of it, 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. We're going to take a few minutes now to get an update on what's been going on from Michael Woolworth, Senior Director of Broadcast Media over at Bible League International. Michael, great to have you back. Well, Janet, great to uh, hear your voice. And uh, let me say this. Thanks for being such a great friend, a great advocate for uh, Bible League. You know, your listeners, they, they've got a great reputation with us. They're caring. They are responsive. They're very generous. In fact, if I may say, Janet, uh, back in April, we engaged in kind of flight number one of this uh, focus on Africa. And we asked your listeners to give toward 1,500 Bibles. Let me tell you how it ended up. When we reached the end at the end of April, with uh, a match, we had more than 5,000 Bibles going to Africa. And the need yes. is so great. And that's why we're coming back kind of with flight number two and asking your listeners to be in, far of, in this uh, great move of God, uh, Jana. But great to be with you today. Oh, well, thank you. But it's really our honor because what could be more important than getting God's word into the mm. hands of his people? Tell us how dire this situation is. I know for a lot of American listeners, it's kind of a remote issue. You know, oh, people on the other side of the world, some of them don't have Bibles. It doesn't really resonate with me necessarily. Can you paint a picture for us on on the situation, why this situation is so dire right now? Well, if you look at the uh, growth of the Christian community on the continent of Africa in 1900, the year 1900, it totaled about 10 million people. There were 10 million evangelical Christians in that part of the world. 
fast forward to today, uh, about 400 million people call on the name of Jesus. That's mm. about one-third of the population of 1.4 billion people on that uh, continent. And, uh, the need is so great. In fact, uh, Jana, we serve in about 20% of the 54 countries uh, there in Africa. All of these are sub-Saharan. They're Kenya, Tanzania, Ghana, Mozambique, uh, Zimbabwe, and several others. We estimate in those parts that as many as 9 of 10 Christians have no access to the Bible. It means they can't access training as they uh, become uh, leaders of the church, as they're uh, trained to share Christ with others. And that's why there is this great need for training on that continent. It begins with having a Bible in your own language. And Bible League accomplishes this through something called Project Philip. That's the evangelist in Acts 8 who leads the Ethiopian eunuch to faith in Christ, uniquely positioned to share Christ, points this man to the gospel. Um, he's uh, baptized, connected to a local fellowship there. So in the spirit of that Philip, Janet, we help create Philip's all over the continent of Africa, and we uh, promised them a Bible at the tail end of about an 8- to 12-week study. So um, I've been through that, so I can come on here today and tell you it's a great uh, study that puts people in a great place to begin their spiritual walk with Christ. But again, in many places, they can't access the Bible, and that's what your listeners are helping us make good on today, is fulfilling that promise to give them a Bible in their own language. Right, and the reasons for the Bible shortage tend to be what? Well, there's corrupt governments. Frankly, there's there's laws on the books, maybe not in the, in 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 an entire nation, but in many regions of places like Kenya, for example, there are laws on the book that uh, books that prevent you from sharing your faith. There is jail time for people that actually say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There's majority religions that do everything they can to stop the advance of the gospel. They're not, they, they don't welcome the fact that we're trying to foster church growth in their region. There's also a poverty. There's remoteness. Uh, in fact, that'll be uh, illustrated in the share, story I want to share with you today uh, in Zambia. But for those and other reasons, um, we're focused on, uh, on Africa. And uh, as I said earlier, this is where Christianity is growing in the greatest numbers in the world. Number two is Asia. Number three is Latin America. But again, we want to do something something about this today at only $5 a Bible. Yeah, it's a wonderful opportunity. If you'd like to get in on it, please, we encourage you to call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. $5 will send a Bible and help us on our way toward meeting our goal of sending 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Michael Woolworth with us. Now, talk a little bit, if you would, Michael, you would reference Zambia. Uh, Give us a picture of what's going on in Zambia from the perspective of, of one Christian. Yeah, you know, Zambia is where the famous uh, missionary David Livingstone carried out years uh, of ministry. I'm sure the success that we enjoy as a global ministry there, uh, kind of we stand on the, the shoulders of that uh, that Christian giant. But Zambia is a place where um, Islam is uh, gaining quite a foothold. In fact, Christians paid dearly for following Christ there. Let me tell you what happened to a man by the name of Shadrach, an elder in a shanty church uh, deep in the heart of uh, Zambia. He had word there was an attack coming one day from uh, um, um, extremists. Sure enough, that attack came, Janet at the hands of about 20 extremists. They came with the intent of killing all 200 Christians that were gathering to worship on a Sunday. The man Shadrach had a handgun in an attempt to uh, defend the congregation. Um, he shot a man in self-defense, a man by the name of uh, Ishmael, did not kill him, but uh, instead, in Christian love, uh, brought this man back to health. He was a, a livestock farmer, took care of his, his uh, livestock. The man also had a, a daughter who could not read, could not write because of her social standing in that Islamic community. 
literacy. So he used a program from Bible League that gives the gift of literacy, and the reason so is the Bible is the backdrop. They learn not only to form letters and words uh, in their own language, but they learn about Jesus, the great lover of their soul. And so she came to saving faith. The entire family, seeing Christian love on display in this man Shadrach, came to saving faith, but it does not end there, Janet, about 80 former Islamic extremists have come to embrace Jesus Christ through what they have seen through this man Shadrach. They see that the gospel is real, there's real hope in Jesus Christ, and yet God has them planted where it is nearly impossible to get a Bible. And Janet, that's why today we're asking your listeners with this specific story to pray about sending God's Word to a hundred new Christians there in Zambia, Africa. I can tell you they're not asking us to pray for an end to the suffering they face. They're praying for what? The Word of God to be able to endure and persevere persevere and to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're holding this joint campaign. That's just amazing. And and to think that you are in a situation where you might not even have a Bible and you're having that kind of impact on Islamic extremists who mm. come to know the Lord. I mean, how much more important is it for them to have Bibles so they can share God's word and God's love with people who desperately need to hear the gospel? Is Zambia, Michael, one of the worst nations comparatively with some of the surrounding nations? I mean, how bad is the Bible situation, just out of curiosity, in Zambia in particular? Well, yeah, let me tell you about the quality of life. You know, we don't hear a lot about HIV AIDS on the continent of Africa anymore. It certainly is still there. This is one of those countries where the um, lifespan is, is very low. And the reason is there's still a prevalence of HIV AIDS. We see a lot of uh, kids there that are orphaned uh, because of that situation. But as for Bibles, you know, that statistic I mentioned, as many as nine of 10 Christians uh, in parts of Africa have no access to the Bible. That's the story there. And again, uh, from what I just told you, you probably gather that it's majority religions i.e. Islam, doing everything it can to stop the advance of the gospel. But as you and I know, uh, the Spirit of God is moving in that part of the world. And again, their prayer is not for an end to the suffering. They don't look at those around them as the enemy. They are looking at them as uh, the mission field. And the prayer is for uh, Bibles. Right now, as I mentioned, there are about 80 new Christians going through Project Philip. They'll wrap that up in the coming weeks. And we want to be able to say, hey, those Bibles we've promised you, they're on their way. That's exactly right. Well, that's why we are asking listeners once again, if you're just tuning in, help us in this wonderful campaign with Bible League International, Open the Floodgates, Bibles for Africa. We are trying to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa where the need is so great and the hunger is so great. And it's not just Mm. the Christians who are affected, Michael. It's, as you just mentioned, those who don't yet know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are greatly impacted by these believers. Let's get them the Bibles that they need. All you need to do is call 800-YES-WORD. It's 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. $5 is all it costs to send one Bible. Can you please help us by sending at least one Bible today? 800-YES-WORD is the number to call, and we thank you so very much, and thank you to Michael Woolworth and your team over at Bible League. We love what you guys are doing. God bless you, and we'll continue to pray that God's Word will get to those believers over in Africa. Thanks, Janet. Thanks for being with us. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. Back in a moment.
Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families, offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. When this young mom came to a preborn center, she was planning to have an abortion. But after receiving love and support and meeting her baby on ultrasound, she chose life. When I walked in for the ultrasound and I saw my baby and I heard his heartbeat, my mind changed completely. I couldn't do that to my baby. I have decided to keep it. Preborn partners with clinics and cities with the highest abortion rates in the country. Will you help preborn save these precious lives? When a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, she's 80% more likely to choose life. And that's just the beginning of the story. I know that with support and with God by my side, I'll be able to do this, not just for me, but for my baby. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, you know, we have talked quite a bit about critical race theory. It is the most horrific idea that has come along to infect the public schools and American society in many, many years. And it's really shocking to me how many people are buying into it. It is racism. It's just flat out racism. If you're trying to make the case that there is systemic racism in America and yet you fail to support that by saying individuals are all racists, which you can't do because most people aren't racist at all or to the extent that you are accusing them of being racist, then then how is it that this thing still has legs? Well, we had the 1619 Project at the New York Times Magazine, even though they had to come back and issue some corrections because they got details on that wrong. And even though a lot of parents are now beginning to rise up and scream and yell about this in their local school districts. And by the way, keep it up because it's very important. You now have, just to bring everybody up to speed, the National Education Association, if you hadn't heard, held its annual meeting just recently filled with, as Red State says, the usual twaddle that NEA activists talk about when they get together. But they admitted, this is very interesting, they admitted that critical race theory was not only taught in schools, protecting the ability of teachers to conduct struggle sessions by humiliating and intimidating their young charges into submission was a top priority. Uh, This is wild because they were trying to say that critical race theory isn't taught in the public schools. Boy, this is kind of funny. It's kind of like the Southern Baptist Convention. What do you mean critical race theory? Just because we tell you that you're all a bunch of racists doesn't mean we're teaching critical race theory. In fact, we're against it. 
Okay, right. Well, Christopher Rufo, who has been a very strong voice against critical race theory, pointed this out that the nation's largest teachers union also approved a plan to promote critical race theory in all 50 states and 14,000 local school districts. So this argument they were making that critical race theory isn't in K through 12 schools, he says, is officially dead. The union also approved funding for increasing the implementation of critical race theory in K through 12 curricula, as we mentioned, and for not only that, but also attacking conservative groups who oppose CRT indoctrination. Now, this is very interesting. National Review had a piece about this. I'll share a little bit of it with you. The NEA voted to conduct opposition research on groups that oppose the use of critical race theory in curricula. So we're going to go after you. It's kind of like when Obama went after, you know, individual journalists and the IRS banned particular groups from getting, you know, approval for 501c3s because they didn't like the ideology. I mean, welcome to commie America. During its virtual representative assembly, the NEA adopted an amendment that would see the union spend an estimated $56,500 on researching anti-critical race theory organizations. This business item said NEA will research the organizations attacking educators doing anti-racist work. No, it's actually completely racist. And or they say that use the research already done and put together a list of resources and recommendations for state affiliates, locals and individual educators to utilize when they are attacked. I mean, it's just like a brawl in the public schools. The NEA is so far left, it's not even funny. They go on to say the research resources and recommendations will be shared with members through NEA's social media, an article in NEA Today, and a recorded virtual presentation and webinar. The attacks on anti-racist teachers are increasing, coordinated by well-funded organizations such as the Heritage Foundation. Oh, yeah, they're a real threat. Are you kidding? The Heritage Foundation is doing great work, as are many other organizations, to bring people into the knowledge of what's actually going on in their kids' public school districts. And it's outrageous. And parents across the nation who have kids in public schools continue to need to fight it. You need to go to your local school board meetings and you need to find out what your kids are being taught. Now, it is the case that a number of states have banned the teaching of critical race theory. But, you know, it's important to also alert your child. I don't hear this talked about a whole lot, but kids are smart. Maybe this isn't as appropriate if the child is in kindergarten or first grade, if you have kids at that age level. But if you have high school kids, you are certainly capable as parents of saying, tell me if anything seems out of line. If anybody in your your classroom, your teacher starts referring to you as a a racist or a white supremacist, or there's any kind of critical race theory terminology thrown about, I want to know about it. I mean, we should all be doing that, all of those who have kids in the public school district. So they want to go after opposition groups to CRT. I mean, that that's, you know, this is no longer about education. It hasn't been in a while. But now here's the update. This is interesting. Jessica Anderson is the executive director of Heritage Action, which is the lobbying arm for the Heritage Foundation. She made the discovery that the NEA erased its pledge to commit to teaching critical race theory in public schools from its website. (laughs) Now, why would they do that? The NEA, just a couple of days ago, convened for its, you know, representative assembly and debated these resolutions and came up with this idea and spending all this money to teach critical race theory. And then we find out that the NEA website all of a sudden deleted this particular issue of 
wanting to teach critical race theory. It's just bizarre, isn't it? Why would that all of a sudden occur? I don't know why they would suddenly want to bury something that's so unlike the left to erase things and hide things and tell you that what you're seeing in front of your face isn't what you're seeing in front of your face. These people have no business in public education. These activists, they should be drummed out. And I know that's easier said than done. But, it, you know, it's tiring to have to organize and to have to agitate at times. But if you don't do that, the end result will be way worse. Now, here's something I want to tell you about that kind of goes along with this story regarding the NEA that should give you give you a little bit of hope, a little bit of hope anyway. This is from the Christian Post, but it's talking about this new survey from Rasmussen Reports showing that more than three quarters of likely American voters believe it's important for schools to teach traditional values associated with Western civilization. <gasps> oh, that's terrible. No, 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 no. The CRT people don't like Western civilization. That's way too white. No, 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 no. We have to look at the skin color of people because we're anti-racist. But let's talk about the skin color of people who built the West in large measure. Of course, there were contributions, important contributions by by black people as well. Certainly, that's the case. We would never deny that. But it's the people who are trying to advocate for critical race theory who are being racist and saying that anything basically that's done by some of these greats in Western civilization you know, they, they were racist. They were horrible. They were slave owners. Look, nobody's going to defend the fact that anybody was a slave owner. It's terrible, but it is what it is. There are a lot of terrible things in history. What they don't want to talk about is the righting of the wrongs, the fighting of the American Civil War, which served to end slavery, which is exactly what should have happened, or the passage of the Federal Civil Rights Act of 1964, which ended segregation, which was also a great thing. Now they want to bring it all back and refight battles that a lot of us already thought were pretty much, you know, corrected. No, we want to continue to keep Americans divided. That's the whole Marxist game is balkanize the United States, make people hate each other based on their skin color. We cannot put up with it. We are one nation under God and we need to start acting like it again. 78% going back to this report, uh, the survey from Rasmussen report uh, reports, 78% of likely U.S. voters believe that it's at least somewhat important for schools to teach the traditional values of Western civilization with 52% saying it's very important. That's a majority, clearly. By contrast, 14% of respondents said they didn't believe it was important to teach traditional Western civilizational values. 4% said it wasn't at all important. Okay, that's a small number, 4%. 4% is almost nothing. 78% is a gigantic number. So if there is this huge discrepancy between the largest teachers union in the United States and likely U.S. voters, 78 percent of whom, according to this survey, believe you should teach the traditional values of Western Civ, then the people who are part of the 78 percent need to show themselves and they need to speak up and they need to express truth and they need to stand up for the United States, and they need to stand up more importantly for the values upon which our nation was built, individual liberty, unalienable rights given to us by our creator, rights that the government did not grant, and therefore the government does not have a right to take from us, and to reject just as strongly as possible this Marxist scheme, because that's what it is underneath all of it. It is a Marxist worldview that wants to pit classes against each other. That's how you destabilize a society. And that's how you reach a point at which Politburo types can move in and take over. We don't want that. 
So let's stand up for the traditional values of Western civilization, which are built, like it or not, upon the foundation and the blueprint of God's holy word. Yes, I understand. Christian nation, and we're not saying all the founders were saved, but we understand that had it not been for the Bible, there wouldn't have been a United States in the form in which we inherited it. So let's stand up for it and fight for our nation. It's not too late. Thank you for being with us on Janet Meffer today. Always a pleasure to have you along, and we'll see you next time.